This season's opening night marks a historic production for the Metropolitan Opera, the company's first presentation of an opera by a black composer. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore the highly anticipated Metropolitan Opera premiere of Fire Shut Up in My Bones. You're invited to the Guild's 87th Annual Luncheon, Artistry and Impact. Taking place on November 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, This virtual event will honor the performance careers and education contributions of Harolyn Blackwell, Diana Soviero, and Thomas Hampson. This exciting gala will include exclusive archival performance footage, special appearances, speeches, and musical tributes from individuals including Denise Graves, John Holliday, Catherine Lewick, and Eileen Perez. Tickets start at $75 and are available for purchase at www.metguild.org slash luncheon2021 or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Featuring a score by renowned jazz musician Terence Blanchard and a libretto by actor and director Casey Lemons, Fire Shut Up In My Bones was this year's opening night performance, marking the return of live opera to the Met stage after the longest closure in company history. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, librettist and author Joanne Sidney Lesner explores this exciting new work. I was fortunate enough to see and review the opera at its world premiere in St. Louis in 2019. And I was also lucky enough to be at opening night here at the Met a few weeks ago, which was a very exciting and affirming experience for so many reasons. And I'm sure you probably all know that this is the first opera that the Met has produced in its 138-year history by a black composer, Terence Blanchard, a black librettist, Casey Lemons, and a black director, Camille A. Brown, who co-directed with James Robinson, and she also choreographed the production. It's based, as I'm sure you also know, on the memoir by New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow. And it's a coming-of-age story about Blow's childhood in the 1970s in poor, rural Gibbsland, Louisiana, which is probably best known as the site of the fatal ambush of Bonnie and Clyde. The central event is Charles's molestation at age seven by his teenaged cousin, Chester. And both the memoir and the opera delve into the repercussions of this assault, especially as it relates to Blow's exploration of what it means to be a man, in particular a black man, in the South, and also to his understanding and acceptance of his own bisexuality. So according to Blanchard, Blow had not seen or heard a note of the opera until opening night in St. Louis. 
that is a very strange and unnerving experience to watch someone watching your version of them play out on stage. And I know because I have actually had this experience. So as Stuart said, I'm also a librettist. I collaborate with my husband, composer Joshua Rosenblum, whose byline you might also recognize from Opera News. You might also recognize his mask sitting right over there. Um, <laughs> together, we have created two children and six musicals with another on the way. Musicals, not, not, not children. The first musical we wrote was called Fermat's Last Tango, and it played at the York Theater in the year 2000. And it's about Princeton professor Andrew Wiles, who in 1993 famously solved the 250-year-old math problem known as Fermat's Last Theorem. So we thought this was a great idea for a musical. Um, Andrew Wiles is famously very reclusive, and he did not respond to our multiple attempts to contact him and interview him. But we went ahead, and we wrote the, we wrote the musical anyway. We changed his name at the advice of our lawyer. Uh, not so much because of him, because he is a public figure, and that's actually, you know, he's fair game. But because his wife was a character, and she is not. And furthermore, we were depicting their marriage, or at least what we thought their marriage was, was like. So a colleague of Wiles's saw the show and told him he should see it. So Christmas Eve of that year, Andrew Wiles, his wife, and their three daughters came to see the show. And I can tell you, it was absolutely nerve-wracking. <laughs> we stood in the back watching them watch themselves. And uh, it was particularly funny when the wife launched into a number called Math Widow, which is a bump and grind number full of sexual innuendos and math puns. And the three girls were like, Mom, Mom, oh my god, did you do that? It was really very funny. So <laughs> fortunately, um, it was quite an experience. And fortunately, Andrew really loved the show. And it's actually because of his enthusiasm that it was filmed. And if you want to check and make sure that I'm not making any of this up, you can, you can actually see it on YouTube. Uh, but here is what Terrence Blanchard had to say about his experience on opening night in St. Louis with Charles Blow in the audience. He said, I didn't let Charles hear anything until the night of the premiere, and then I was scared to death. But after, I walked over to him and I said, we good? And he goes, yeah. So for his part, Blow got a lot of questions about what, what it was like for him to watch himself. And he addressed this in an op-ed in the Times shortly afterwards. And he concluded, I sat Saturday in the darkened opera theater watching a beautifully rendered version of a past that I no longer fully recognized or related to. And I felt blessed and victorious. The person on that stage in anguish was no longer me. It's amazing, right? And seeing Charles Blow's exuberance when he joined uh, Terrence Blanchard and Casey Lemon's opening night of the Met on stage, he was, I've, I've never seen anybody's face shine with, with such delight and joy. It was really something. So uh, tonight, I'll just give you a little overview. I will give you some background on Terrence Blanchard, Casey Lemon's, and Charles Blow. We'll learn a little bit about the process of adapting this source material. And uh, I'll point out some musical moments for you to listen for tonight when you go to the opera. We have a few musical excerpts. We'll also hear a bit from the creative team about their approach. And then I'll send you off to the opera house. So since it is an opera, we will start with the composer. Terrence Blanchard was born in 1962 in New Orleans. He grew up playing trumpet and piano with his friends 
Winton and Branford Marsalis, and he went on to study jazz trumpet at Rutgers. He started his career playing with Lionel Hampton and Art Blakey before embarking on a tremendously successful solo career. So here's a taste of Terence Blanchard in action. not what you're going to hear tonight. <laughs> Blanchard has scored more than 60 films. He's done most of Spike Lee's films, and he has two Oscar nominations, 14 Grammy nominations, and six wins. But he grew up listening to opera. His father was an amateur singer who played opera recordings and televised productions in the house all the time. So Blanchard grew up immersed in the classics. Now, the club of composers who've written operas and scored films is pretty small. There's Eric Korngold, Elliot Goldenthal, and Max Steiner, who scored King Kong and Gone with the Wind, who was the one who famously said, if Wagner were alive today, he would write film music. <laughs> and there are ways in which the two genres are similar. In both, the music conveys the emotion of the story, both in small moments and also in terms of narrative sweep. And if you want a particularly powerful example of just how much the score contributes to a movie, watch the flying scene from E.T. with the sound off. <laughs> Completely different experience. So Fire Shut Up in My Bones is Terrence Blanchard's second opera. His first, Champion, was about the life of Emil Griffith, a boxer who fought mostly in the 1960s and 1970s. He was gay and mostly closeted. His sexuality was known among his, his colleagues, but not discussed. And both Champion and Fire were commissioned and premiered by Opera Theater of St. Louis with direction by James Robinson, who, as I mentioned, co-directs the Met production with Camille Brown. So given Blanchard's father's taste in traditional opera, and Blanchard has said that his personal favorite opera is Bohème, it is actually not surprising that his classical style, his classical style is relatively conservative. So you're not going to hear the kind of spiky dissonances that you hear with Thomas Otis. You're not going to hear that kind of minimalist cycling that you hear with Philip Glass or, uh, or John Adams. But what makes Blanchard so unique is the way he incorporates non-classical styles, so jazz, blues, fusion, gospel, R&B, into the score. But it doesn't sound piecemeal. The flow is very natural. 
And it's all to a purpose because Blow's world, Charles Blow's world, is multifaceted. So it makes sense that Blanchard's musical world would be also, and he captures all of these elements very, very naturally. Um, so the score, pieces of the score are not necessarily identifiably a, a particular genre. Some are. You'll go, oh, well, that's definitely gospel. Um, but most of the time, it's Blanchard's own synthesis of it. And that is what has led people to describe Fire as a jazz-infused opera, but not a jazz opera specifically. Maybe the closest comparison in terms of incorporating, um, let's call them popular styles, is William Bolcom. But Bolcom tends to integrate them more into the fabric of the score. And uh, Blanchard tends to use these styles to inform set pieces, like a, a, something that could, you, you could extract, a musical number that you can extract. Um, and also to inform character. And to emphasize those moments, there's, a, there's actually a jazz quartet, piano, bass, drums, guitar, in the orchestra. So you'll hear a fair amount of that. You'll hear particularly a fair amount of piano. So the next clip I'm going to show you is baritone Will Liverman, who plays the role of Charles in the opera, and Blanchard talking a little about the score. Terence Blanchard is a mad scientist with the melodic and harmonic structures he creates. And obviously you hear that jazz influence, that rhythm and blues, that gospel. And these are musical styles that I grew up with. And I can recognize and pinpoint some things, you know, when I try and play some of it back in the chords. And it's just so easy to sing into. When you listen to Puccini's La Boheme, you know, that first opening sequence, all of those phrases, you know, may be based off of one tonal harmony. And then all of a sudden it changes. I'm writing more like a jazz musician where you have colors that are changing every two bars, like a standard jazz composition. I'm trying to meld that into the tradition of what's been happening in opera. So you heard Liverman mention how easy he finds it to sing into Blanchard's music. And some of that comes from the fact that Blanchard is setting the rhythms of the language more naturally than some contemporary opera composers. He has said that he begins his process by charting the rhythms of the text, and then a series of chord progressions emerge from which the melodies come after that. So he starts from the text in a very granular way, the sounds and the rhythms of the words, not just the meaning and emotion of the words. What's interesting is that Mussorgsky, Mussor I can never say that, Mussorgsky, did I get all those consonants? was known to write in such a way that was lyrical, but also true to Russian speech inflections. And it was also a core of Wagner's aesthetic of setting texts. And Janacek also made it a point of reflecting the natural rhythms of the Czech language, uh, the natural melodies and rhythms of the Czech language when he wrote. So contemporary operas in English don't necessarily prioritize this approach. But Blanchard is definitely drawing on standard operatic tradition, as well as jazz composition, in his approach to text setting which brings us to the text by Casey Lemons. So Blanchard and Casey Lemons have worked together for years, although this is their first opera together. In fact, this is Lemons' first ever opera libretto. So that's hitting it out of the park, right? Landing at the Met. Um, so Lemons was born in St. Louis in 1961, and she began her career as an actress. Most notably, she was in Silence of the Lambs. She was in the original Candyman. Uh, yep, but she's known primarily as a writer and director of films, including Eve's Bayou and Harriet, starring Cynthia Erivo as Harriet Tubman, which was nominated for two Oscars. And both of those films were scored by Blanchard. 
So she was always interested in writing an opera libretto, but interestingly, until she did it, she did not know that the libretto comes first. So she wrote the libretto to fire. She handed off her work to Blanchard, and that was that until she heard the finished score two years later. Now, that is pretty unusual. To not have had any back and forth at all between librettist and composer, that's no active collaboration to speak of. So in musical theater, sometimes the music comes first, sometimes the lyrics. But either way, there is usually plenty of back and forth along the way between composer and lyricist before the song reaches its final form. I can tell you, in our house, after 31 years of marriage and sitting right next to each other, the chances of Josh and me turning out a musical without a virtually continuous dialogue are pretty much zero. Um, and musical theater is known, as in many ways, as the most collaborative of art forms. But even in opera, there's norm even though there's, there's far less of that kind of give and take, there usually is some. So for Lemons and Blanchard to not have had any contact for two years is, is really quite unusual. And to my mind, it's also very complimentary to Lemons. It's as if Blanchard is saying, yep, nope, you gave me everything I needed. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, so it's, and it's a wonderful collaboration. You'll hear tonight how the libretto and the music, uh, it's, it, his setting of, settings of her words are, are so natural, at, you know, as I'd mentioned before. But it's interesting, the process of adapting source material, of adapting a, a book. When I read, when I read Blow's memoir, my librettist brain started working, and I started found myself thinking about what moments I would pull out and musicalize. And of course, what she did is totally different and much, much better than anything I could have come up with, obviously. Um, but she has spoken about some of the challenges of adapting a memoir, particularly because the book is essentially, any memoir is essentially an interior monologue. It's one person's thoughts and ruminations and recollections and analyses about his life. And it's very hard to make that dramatic. Um, and I actually had this, I had this problem a little bit with Fermat's Last Tango because it was all Andrew Wiles trying to solve this math theorem. So I came up with populating the musical with singing and dancing dead mathematicians who spend eternity in the aftermath. Yeah, I did. I went there. I actually really did. Um, <laughs> But beyond dramatizing the stories that Blow is telling in the memoir, so you know, there's there's stories. There are, there are stories that you can populate with characters. Beyond those, those obvious moments, how do you dramatize in a how do you dramatize what's going on in his mind? How do you present that in a dramatic way? So Lemon starts by having Charles Blow depicted, uh, portrayed by two different people. So Will Liverman, whom you just saw, plays Charles at age 20. And a very talented young man named Walter Russell III plays seven-year-old Charles, who is known both to his family and to the community that he grew up in as Charles' baby. So what this does is it allows, in the opera, it allows the adult Charles to be an observer of his early trauma in the same way that Blow is an observer writing his recollections in the memoir. And then at the end of the opera, Lemons flips it and Charles' baby returns, personifying Charles's inner child. And he offers him some life-changing advice at the end of the opera. The other really effective thing that Lemons does is she personifies destiny and loneliness, who function as sort of those over-the-shoulder angel and devils that you see in cartoons. Because she felt that Charles's 
that, that Charles Blow's sense of destiny, that he has this sense that he is destined someday to take revenge on his cousin Chester, that that and his sense of isolation and loneliness, which only intensified after the assault, that destiny and loneliness were so palpable to him that they could be personified on stage. And they're written to be sung by the same person. They're both sung by Angel Blue, who also plays Charles's college girlfriend, Greta, who, even though she's a real person, but she also is, she's not a construct, but she does embody love. He, she is his, his first real love. So here's a bit from Casey Lemons talking about how she came to these ideas when she was adapting the, uh, the memoir. Jim Robinson opened my mind to the possibilities. And one of the things he said that really sank in, he said, anything can sing. Once I started to really feel that in my bones, I really embraced that. The trees could sing. And then um, I took that a step further and said, well, maybe his loneliness could sing. So I got very inspired by the idea that anything could sing and that there was a freedom to the form that maybe I could embrace and really be liberated by. I said to Terrence, the truth of how I saw it, if you guys want to make an opera, it's a different artistic creation. So as long as thematically it is accurate to how I felt about it, as long as it ends properly, <laughs> then I was, you know, I said, you know, go for it. So that's Charles Blow, who was born in 1970 in Gibsland, the youngest of five boys. His father, Spinner, was a drinker and a gambler who was largely absent. And young Charles was a soft-spoken, intellectual, and introverted child. He was very attached to his mother, Billy, who worked in a chicken plucking factory, but later went on to become a teacher and a school administrator. Blow went on to found his high school newspaper, and he graduated as valedictorian of his class. And he went on to Grambling State University, a historically black college close to Gibsland, where he majored in mass communications and joined the fraternity Kappa Alpha Psi. He started out as a graphic designer and editor, working at the Detroit News, National Geographic, and ultimately he landed at the New York Times and began his own op-ed column in 2008. He is also well-known as a TV commentator where he primarily discusses race, politics, and social justice. I was an avid reader of Charles Blow's co columns before the book came out, and I can have to confess I fangirled a bit when I was introduced to him in St. Louis. Um, he's, he's so astute, and he has always been a very trenchant observer of particularly the insidious repercussions of racism, poverty, violence, toxic masculinity, and their confluence. In his column from September 12th of this year, titled, Why I Write, he addressed the oft-held maxim to write what you know, and this is what he said. What I knew was that otherness, that outsiderness, that sense of being left behind and left out, that sense of being the world's disposable people because you had little money and wielded little power. When I write, I often consider how I would explain something to the old people I grew up around, all of them poor. They weren't highly educated, but their use of metaphor was exquisite, and their ability to reduce a complex idea into a compact phrase was unmatched. 
I would say the same thing of Charles Lowe. His prose is also inherently musical. So the title of the book, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, it comes from the Bible, from Jeremiah. And here's the actual quote. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart, as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not hold back. Here's how Charles Blow uses the phrase in the book. I would harness the truths that had been trapped in me like a fire shut up in my bones. I would give my life over to my passions, my writing, and my children, and they would breathe, breathe life back into me. So his memoir is an act of liberation, redemption, and acceptance. And it's also an impressive exercise in vulnerability. So here's Charles Blow talking about getting to the point of being able to not just write these words that he had been suppressing for so many years, but to send them out into the world. You have to write a book when you can no longer not write it, right? Um, if, if there's a part of you that, that is afraid of it, is, is still apprehensive about it, it is not time for you to write that book. There may be a different form. Um, I'm specifically now talking about memoir. Memoir is 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 a complete vulnerability. There is no way to hide. I mean, celebrities can write these kind of ridiculous memoirs where they don't say anything. The rest of us cannot, right? Uh, the rest of us, if we choose this form, um, you have to. If you're in for an inch, you're in for a yard. You have to say. I could make this a romantic cloth. I could make this fictional. I could do anything if I want to protect myself. And, and if I feel a need to protect, I should write that sort of book. If I'm going to write the memoir, I have to give the whole of me to this project. Um, and I think that that comes with sometimes a level of maturity. That's why I think a lot of times memoirs written by people older, both because they've lived a whole life and they can bring the life of wisdom to it, but also, actually, I'm kind of young, I think, to write memoir. But, uh, but um, but also because you, you, you're at a place where it feels like this is something that you can no longer not do. Something, right? To be that vulnerable, to be willing to dig that deep. Um, his wife always, uh, spoiler alert, he marries Greta. They have, this is not in the opera. They have three children. But they did divorce in 2000. But she was always aware of his bisexuality. But he didn't come out publicly until the, the, um, until the publication of Fire. And he certainly didn't um, speak about the assault publicly until then as well. So now we have some background on the creative team and the process. So let's take a closer look at the opera and what you're going to hear tonight and what you're going to see. So it begins with a short prelude not unlike what you would hear in Verdi or Puccini. And then we see Charles in his car, racing home from Grambling State in the dead of night with his mother's pistol in his hand, determined to kill his cousin Chester, who has reappeared at his mother's house after all these years. He's just called her, and she says, Billy says, guess who's here? And puts Chester on the phone, thinking it's going to be a nice surprise. So hearing Chester's voice, and the book, both the book and the opera begin this way, hearing Chester's voice on the other end of the phone ignites that fire 
and the tears and rage that Charles has been suppressing all these years burst forward, sending him spinning into his past. And from there, the opera is essentially a flashback, tracing the touch points of Charles's life that have led him to this moment in the car. And who better to tie that all together for him than destiny personified? So she's right there with him. So as I mentioned, adult Charles is an observer for most of the first act, watching his younger self, Charles Baby, although they often sing together, which is a way of dramatizing the act of Charles remembering, to have him joining in with the voice of his younger self. Um, so Charles Baby is the youngest of five rowdy boys, and he's described as a graceful boy in a dangerous place. The women infantilize him, but the men sense something is off. They dote on him, but they don't entirely trust him. They sing, not just mama's baby, our baby too. We keep wondering what's wrong with you. Everybody recognizes his difference, no one more than Charles himself, even if they can't articulate it. Um, beyond the phrase, there's a phrase that recurs several times in the opera, peculiar grace. And one side note about how costumes can help tell the story, we see Charles is different because he is always wearing a white button-down shirt and khakis, e even little Charles, um, while his older brothers, both as adults and children, are always wearing play clothes. But interestingly, when we first meet Charles in that car, racing through the dead of night with the gun, his shirt is unbuttoned. It's like he's come undone. And he's like that for most of the first act until after, for, actually for most of the opera, for a large part of the opera. So his mother, Billy, sends him similarly mixed messages. She loves him. She keeps him out of school until the last possible moment, much longer than she ever kept any of his older brothers, but somehow she's unable to say the words, I love you. Maybe it's because she fears fully em empowering that softer side that she sees in her son, but also she has to maintain some, uh, some toughness because she is the authority figure. Billy is one of those human superhuman mothers who's trying to keep her family clothed and fed while her ne'er-do-well husband Spinner is, is off gallivanting. But Charles needs her love desperately. And at one point, he sings the words, kiss me, hug me, see me, love me, which is, to me, reminiscent of the Who's Tommy, right? But he's told at every turn to repress those feelings. They make him soft. They make him a mama's boy. And Billy knows she has her son's love. But she's craving love from her husband. And there's a beautiful duet to listen for tonight for mother and son. Um, it's actually not called this, but the phrase that repeats is, where did love lose me? And they actually have, they're, they're sort of on parallel journeys, mother and son, towards self-actualization. And you'll see moments um, later they both go to college at the same time. So he sings his part of this duet over lush strings. She sings over piano. Now, in an earlier scene, we've seen Billy at work in the chicken plucking factory, which is actually a sort of morbidly funny scene where the workers are singing about how hard it is to stop thinking about chicken parts when they're having intimate encounters. <laughs> and then Spinner shows up and asks her for money. And she gives it to him, and he takes it and goes off to a roadside joint um, where he sings a gospel blues number. It's a great number. I wish I could play it for you, but you'll hear it soon, called Lord Love the Sinner. And he's singing it to his girlfriend. And uh, uh, Billy gets a tip off that this is happening. So she grabs her gun. She grabs Charles' baby. She gets in the car. And she goes into the club. And she's going to shoot her husband. And she doesn't. And Charles' baby asks why she didn't shoot him. And here's Latanya Moore as Billy answering that question. 
She's a phenomenal actress, too. You'll, you'll see. You're going to, I think you'll really enjoy it tonight. Um, so after that incident, Billy and her sons move in with kindly Uncle Paul, and you'll hear that her music becomes looser and more playful, sort of like she's reclaiming a part of herself now that she's not living with Spinner anymore. And then Cousin Chester comes for a visit, and he starts showering Charles' baby with attention, and he's hungry for it. So interestingly, Chester's music is sort of syncopated Latin jazz, which uh, has the effect of hooking Charles' baby because it's a bit seductive, but it, it also has the effect of keeping him a little off balance because it's syncopated. But they get along so well that Billy has them share a room, and that's, that's when the assault takes place. And just so you know, it's handled, handled very sensitively. It is not explicitly staged. It's implied. And while it's happening, Destiny sings a haunting aria called Peculiar Grace, and here is Angel Blue singing an excerpt from that aria. So she's wonderful, too. It's a great cast. Um, but you can hear it's a, it's a bit of a gospel anthem, right? Um, so by the second act, now we're in the second act, Charles is a teenager, and now Will Liverman takes center stage. And in addition to the silent shame he's carrying around from the assault, he's also becoming aware of his burgeoning attraction to men, and he's wondering if there's any connection. Camille Brown choreographed a dream ballet in which Charles is surrounded by male figures. They're playful, they're inviting, they're sensual, they're also a little rough and tumble, and it's a beautiful expression of both his desires and his ambivalence. 
Now in St. Louis, this sequence featured male and female dancers, but Brown distilled, she, she distilled it to be just men because she felt that was really the heart of his struggle with his sexuality. Um, and uh, it, and that's, a, that's a beautiful dance moment to look for. So Charles tries to exercise both the shame and the desire. So we have a scene in a church where he gets baptized, which is a straight gospel number. And then um, he tries to explain it to his brothers, but they, what he's going through, but they don't want to hear it. And they taunt him with phrases like, real men don't have no feelings. Real men leave things unsaid. So Charles takes refuge in an abandoned house. And here he's visited by loneliness, who has become a constant companion. But he's also still haunted by these male dream figures. Um, I'm going to read you the passage from the book, and then we'll show you Will Liverman's delivery of this moment in the opera. And you can hear how skillfully Lemons adapts Blow's words. She keeps the metaphor, but she just points it so it can sing. So from the book. Time ground to a halt, and the trees whispered in the language of God and nature about steadfastness and resilience, gently saying that one could be constantly stirred, yet not moved, bent, but not broken, that a thing well-grounded and deeply rooted could ever stand. Here's You can hear too how it's it's a it's a fairly conservative classical sound. I mean that sounds sort of when you think of you know operatic sweep. That's you know that's what that is. So shortly after that moment, he meets a girl named Evelyn, and it's a light rock meet cute duet. And if you listen very closely to the very end of the scene where they sing the words "Alone Together," it's an homage to the song "Happy Together" by the Turtles. So listen for that. Um, Evelyn offers him another possible way out, since the baptism didn't really take, um, and he loses his virginity to her. Afterwards, his brothers congratulate him and also admit to being relieved. That boy just needed to get laid. We can stop wondering what's wrong with you. And this passage that the brothers all sing together is very representative of the way Blanchard merges styles. So the beat gives the impression of a ragtime two-step. Some of the melodies are based on blues scales. And at the same time, the orchestration gives it that symphonic sweep. But it all adds up to something very distinctive. And it also represents the first time that Charles can really relate to his brothers. So then he gets a scholarship to Grambling. And Billy also decides to go to college. And she sings an aria that beautifully expresses the dilemma of the empty nester. You invest yourself in your kids. All you want is time to yourself. But when they leave, you want them back. 
Act three opens at Grambling, where Charles is rushing Alpha Kappa Psi. And all I'll say about this is that Camille Brown's dance sequence is like nothing you have ever seen on the stage of the Met. And it will probably stop the show as it did opening night. After surviving a brutal fraternity hazing, also implied, not seen, over what's probably the most cinematic stretch of the score, Charles emerges into a phase of sort of masculine confidence bordering on bravado. It's like he's proved to himself that he is what people think a man should be. And he meets Greta at a party and falls in love with her to a fusion groove. And fusion, if you're not familiar with the genre, is sort of a synthesis of rock and jazz epitomized by Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, late, later Miles Davis. Charles opens up to Greta and tells her about the assault. And she responds with her own secret, that she's actually in love with someone else. So she leaves Charles, and that's when he calls Billy, who puts Chester on the phone. And we're right back where we started at the beginning of the opera with that mad late-night dash. Only now we have the context. Now we know everything that led to that moment. And it's not really much of a spoiler to say that Charles does not kill his cousin Chester, because if he did, we would be telling a very different story tonight. Um, so you know, this is not where Charles Blow ever thought he'd be. So let's hear some thoughts of his about having landed at the Metropolitan Opera. Most of us are still who we grew up as. And so I am still a little boy from a nowhere place in the world who was very worried that this place that I was writing about is so small and so insignificant in the grand scheme of things that no one would actually care about this little place. And so to see first the book do well and then to have the Met say it is it is grand enough to grace our stage, it's just, it's just an awesome thing. So I'll say that to me, the opera has a feel of an instant classic. And here's why I say that. Because it fully captures a slice of life, a community in time and place that's very specific and very authentic, very authentically done, both musically and dramatically. And at the same time, the themes of this story are universal. What does it mean to be different from the norm in your community, whatever that is? Maybe there are others who are faking it as well, and maybe the norm isn't so normal after all. How do you move forward in your life after an event that threatens your sense of self or confuses your sense of who you are? And when and how is it safe to express feelings of shame? As a parent, how do you fully support that one child who seems to need you more than the others? And why are men not considered real men if they express their emotions? All these elements are there, and they all work perfectly together. Blanchard's score, Lemon's libretto, Blow's story, not to mention the fluid and sensitive direction by Robinson and Brown. And we just saw sneak preview of some of the amazing performances that you'll hear tonight. So I just want to thank you all for being such a wonderful, attentive audience. And I hope you have a fantastic time at the opera tonight. And I'm going to leave you with one last thought from Terrence Blanchard, and as is altogether fitting and proper, a little music. I want to make sure that the shoulders that I'm standing on of the people who have come before me will be proud by what we do. You know, um, I want 
all of those composers, you know, who are living and who are not here, um, to be honored by what it is that we, we, we put on the stage. Because it's because of them that I'm here doing this. And when you have that coming at you, man, you, you, you take it very seriously, you know? Because this is, this is something that can help propel some other little kids forward into wanting to become composers, you know? Um, and that's my hope, that's my dream. You know, I may be the first, but I don't want, definitely don't want to be the last, that's for sure. That was librettist and author Joanne Sidney Lesner guiding us through the profound new production of Fire Shut Up in My Bones. The production, featuring Angel Blue and Will Liverman, will be seen live in HD in cinemas around the world on October 23, 2021. For more information, visit metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms to keep up with all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.